Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast. Uh, my guest is Rich Marini. He's a professor of horticulture at uh, PSU. So we're going to talk about his research on fruit tree physiology, uh, et cetera. So, Rich, thank you for coming. Sure. You're welcome. Well, tell me, what's, what's a bit about your background? How did you get interested in uh, fruit trees and horticulture and stuff like that? Well, I think it goes back to my childhood. <clears throat> uh, my, <clears throat> my grandparents had a vegetable farm, and my dad was a county agent. I was in a 4-H gardening project. So I guess I, I just kind of grew, grew up. With horticulture, so I, I guess okay. that's where my interest came from. Oh, that's great. Um, so what's your current research about today? What are you focusing on? Actually, I just retired about a month ago. The last couple of years, I've been working on uh, a bitter pit, to the disorder in apples, especially Honeycrisp is very susceptible. And I've had Honeycrisp. You said it's called bitter pit. What is it? Yeah. So what it is, it's it's a tough one to work on because when you pick it, the apple looks fine. You put it in cold storage for a few months, and then when you take it out, still looks good. 
leave it at room temperature for a few days, and you get these sunken black areas, mostly at the blossom end of the fruit, so it's the opposite from the stem end. And it goes, oh, maybe a sixteenth of an inch deep. It can be removed and, and eaten, but sometimes it develops on the uh, grocery store shelf, and that's not good. And it's caused by uh, there's not enough calcium in the fruit. Some varieties huh. are more susceptible okay. than others, and, and Honeycrisp is real susceptible. So. Well, is it poisonous, but, or does it just taste gross, or what's the problem with it? No, it's not poisonous. It, you know, I don't know how it tastes because I've never tried it. <laughs> but it doesn't look good, and uh, if it develops in storage, the, uh, the fruit can rot sometimes. So it's, it's, it's not a good – so it's really it's a nutritional disorder in the fruit. Oh, okay. Um, did you ever figure out like how it happens or, you know, you said it's from uh, not enough calcium, but is it not enough now calcium at every stage of yeah. the uh, the trees growing or is it at certain stages? No, they, there's been a lot of work done on it in the last few years and I, I didn't find this, but recently they found that, that the primary problem that's a variety like Honeycrisp, the, uh, there's a vascular system in the tree, which is similar to blood vessels in animals, I guess like the pipelines that bring water and elements and sugars from the roots to the top of the tree. And it, they go all the way into the, the apple itself. And uh, for some reason, honeycrisp, these pipelines plug up pretty early in the season. So calcium doesn't move into the fruit. And so that seems to be the problem. So that's, that's it's just been found in the last four or five years. But visually, you can't tell? Like, is there a way to tell early? Um, you know, what you can do to not, prevent this or no? Yeah, well, the way we prevent it, the thing that's worked best so far at least is we spray calcium on the tree. So we usually spray calcium chloride on the tree about eight times every season. So that way the calcium is absorbed directly into the fruit. And, and, and it helps. Mm. It won't eliminate it, but it helps. Right, I got you. Okay. Any other uh, interesting puzzles you've, you've uh, discovered around fruit in your career? <laughs> For the last couple of years, the other area I've been working on is trying to predict size of apples at harvest time by measuring them early in the season. So that's kind of a statistical problem. So I've been, those are the last two things I was working on. I was also doing some work with raspberries, growing them in high tunnels. High tunnels are similar to a oh, like a house. greenhouse kind of, like a hoop house in a way. Yeah, it's more like a hoop house. So it's, it's like an unheated greenhouse. Uh, raspberries really grow well under those conditions, at, at least in the Northeast. And one of the we we're mm. testing different kinds of plastic. You can cover these houses with different kinds of plastic. In the summer, it gets pretty hot on a sunny day. So we were trying to cover them with plastics that blocked different wavelengths to see if we could keep the um, a little cooler. And one of the things we found was that plastic that blocks ultraviolet radiation uh, it, it helps control Japanese beetles. So Japanese beetles really like to feed on raspberries. And we found when we covered a house with uh, UV blocking plastic, we didn't have any Japanese beetles. So that was kind of neat. No question. It seems like fruit trees take, you know, I don't know, three to five years to produce fruit. Has anyone figured out why or how to accelerate that? Or what, how does the, the tree know when to produce fruit? In Actually, we have accelerated it. Um, so... Fruit trees are, and a lot of other kinds of trees are propagated on rootstocks. So if you if you plant an apple seed, it won't give you a tree that's the same variety as, yeah, as the variety that the seed came from. Okay, so it's so it's going to be something different, usually not nearly as good. So 
So the only way we can maintain a variety is vegetatively propagating it. So some plants can be vegetatively propagated by making cuttings. Unfortunately, apples don't root very easily. <clears throat> so the way we do it is we graft onto a, another apple tree. So that's called a rootstock. And uh, so we have some dwarfing roots. Most, almost every orchard now is planted on dwarf rootstocks. And these dwarfing rootstocks make the tree um, fruit a little bit earlier. So if you have a tree that really has grown very well in the nursery, uh, usually we can get a little bit of fruit the second year, by the third year for sure. So we've shortened it up a lot, mostly with the use of a rootstock. And also the nurseries are growing much better quality trees than they did 20 years ago. And it's probably based on the hormones in the tree, most likely. I don't think anybody's... They've identified some of the genes that are involved. But I don't think they know exactly how the genes work. Um, but is there anything you could do with, with, well, with light and dark cycles or, I mean, you know, heat and cold? Is there any way to accelerate? The, I mean, I don't know what the term is called, you know, when the tree grows. I guess it's in its vegetative yeah. stage until it produces fruit. But is there any way to accelerate this? I haven't seen any work on that. Um, that would, you'd have to do that all the entire season, probably. And uh, I don't, I don't think so. So sometimes trees that are growing very vigorously will have delayed fruiting. So if you if you fertilize them too much or you prune them too much, that'll delay fruiting. A lot of times we try to avoid that. But I don't know anybody that's tried to really manipulate the environment um, to get them the fruit sooner. Um, it, that would be hard to do in the field. I don't know. Does anyone have a desire to do it or? You know, I mean, if, I don't, if there's different, if there's yeah, certain weather patterns with with certain fruit trees, have people noticed that? Um, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of instances where they don't go to fruit, so there's probably a lot of stuff that prevents them. But is there anything that encourages them or accelerates them? Well, the fruit trees we grow, I don't think so. The, uh, I mean, I've been involved in multi-state research projects where we have the same variety on the same rootstocks that we obtain from the same nurseries. You know, all the way from Georgia and Alabama up to Nova Scotia and British Columbia. And they all fruit about the same time. They, they take about the same length of time to fruit. So the, the rootstock seems to be more important than anything else. So, um... Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. What does it mean? The condition of the roots or the, the the spread of the roots? Or what do you mean? No, just, well, I don't know what it is. It's just something, the genetics of the rootstock. So there's, there's a communication between the top of the tree and the roots. I mean, so a rootstock, it's, it's a grafted tree. And genetic material can get through that graft. You know, so they, they found RNA from the rootstock in the top of the tree. So, um, so the rootstock can really have a huge impact on the top of the tree. You know, part of it is it'll influence the ultimate size of the tree um, when it starts to produce fruit, uh, disease resistance, 
um, even fruit size. So we, we can really manipulate a tree quite a bit just by changing the rootstock. And that's, that's how we've been doing it you know, more recently. We grow my dwarf. When you say when you when you say manipulating the rootstock, what does that mean? What kind of experiments have you done? What people have done? Well, well, we just try different rootstocks. We have right now commercially there uh, there are probably more than thirty rootstocks available from commercial nurseries now, and they all have different characteristics. So depending on what a grower wants, they can use different rootstocks. So, but most of well, what the is that? rootstocks. Are, what does that mean? You're grafting on the roots of another fruit tree of the same type or what does it what does it mean the rootstock change the rootstock is actually another it's another variety of apple basically but it's been selected because it roots easily so but we can root new trees from the rootstock so we're producing the rootstock vegetative you know with um vegetative reproduction by by making cuttings sort of it's it's more complicated than that but basically it's a cutting and then we graft the variety we want on, onto that. So, um, and it, that's the way it's been done for a couple thousand years. You know, um, so every, you said it's been done this way for, for thousands of years, literally? When was it discovered? Yeah, yeah they, um, the dwarfing rootstocks, one of the dwarfing rootstocks we use now, they think Alexander the Great brought it back to Europe from his conquest in Asia. So that's amazing. That rootstock's pretty wow. old. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of instances in, in the ancient literature that they talk about grafting. So grafting is an old, you know, it goes back to ancient times. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So um, rootstocks, again, it allows the plant to root very easily, but does that mean it changes over the whole plant to become whatever that rootstock is? Or what happens if you get like a Frankenstein, you know, one kind of uh, apple with a rootstock from another kind of apple, what happens to it? No, the, well, the, if, if you don't graft the rootstock, you know, just let the rootstock grow into a tree, uh, it'll produce fruit, but most of them, they're more like crab apples. You know, they don't taste good. They're small, usually pretty tart. But by grafting onto it, it doesn't change. So if you put a, a Golden Delicious onto five different rootstocks, uh, the, they're all going to produce Golden Delicious. So it doesn't really affect fruit itself. It just kind of changes the growth habit of the tree. It might make it, and it may influence the disease resistance, but you're still going to have the same variety on top. It doesn't change that. I don't know. This is why, okay. in my class, when, when I used to teach tree fruit, uh, yeah, I spent a whole couple of lectures on rootstocks. So you're, you're into kind of a complicated subject here. But, uh, well, no problem. I mean, we could just cover a few points, but, you know. So what, how do you match? Uh, a rootstock with a tree and you know how do people know when it's going to work and when it's not and what kind of uh, attributes can you tweak doing it well it's mostly trial and, el- trial and error so right now there's one rootstock breeding program in the united states and that's a joint effort between cornell university and the usda and so he's so the rootstock breeder is uh testing a lot of these trees for various characteristics. And when he gets one that he thinks is pretty good, then they make it available to researchers. We can test them to see it, how they compare it to the rootstocks we already have. We're looking to improve it if we can. Um, well, what does it look like, a rootstock? Is it just like a, a small piece of root or is it like a whole big tangle of roots? And, you know, how do you graft it onto the existing tree? Oh, um, so the rootstock is really very small. One shoot, maybe a foot long. And it's got some 
a little bit of roots on the bottom, but not much. And we just, so they're usually about pencil thickness. And we just take a piece of a variety, another a shoot from a, a variety like a Gala, Gold Delicious, Fuji, whatever. And uh, we can graft it on. And then we grow it in the nursery for one year. By then, the tree in the commercial nurseries, they, they can grow them better than I can. You know, the tree will be six feet tall and it'll have four or five branches on it at the end of one year. And then they'll dig those up and sell it to whoever wants to buy the tree. What about the microbiome of the roots? You know, do they wash the rootstock off? And then once you transfer it, just a new microbiome is created in that new soil, that new environment? Or, you know, does anyone try to preserve some of the dirt along with the roots and plant both? Well, generally, the uh, nurseries fumigate the soil before they plant. So they're trying to kill ne- nematodes are a problem because uh, there are some species of nematodes that um, serve as a vector for viruses. And there may be some pathogenic fungi or even bacteria in the soil. So usually they fumigate where they plant. So I don't know what's on the roots, but when they dig them, they just shake the dirt off, the, the soil off. So they don't wash them off. They usually just shake it. Then they sell a bare rooted tree. But depending on the nursery, you know, there's going to be different microorganisms on those roots. All right, sure. Um, okay, so they, how do they graft it? Do they just tie it, tie it to an existing root, or do they make holes and kind of, uh, you know, make male female holes and smoosh the roots together so that the juices of them are mixing, or how do they graft them? Well, there's, there's a, a lot of different kinds of grafts that can be done, and even some of them are budded. So all you need to do is just, you can, um, the simplest one is called a cleft graft. So um, you, you can make sort of a V-shaped cut, cut off the rootstock, and you, you kind of split it vertically. And then the variety you got to put on top is referred to as a scion. And we can make that sort of a pointed shape. And then you stick that pointed shape into the vertical slit so they so you if you look at a cross section of the shoot or a tree, uh, there's a green ring around the on the inside of the bark, and that's called the cambium, and that's where new cells are formed. And so, as long as the cambium of the scion lines up with the cambium of the rootstock, they grow together, and it makes a very strong union. And, um, and so that's all it is. And there's different ways to do it. There's a lot of different kinds of grafts. Um, the other way to do it is just take a bud from your scion variety. So you take a golden delicious bud and you can uh, make a slit in the bark of the rootstock and you slide the bud in. Then the bark is sort of like two flaps and the, the bud sticks in there and then you just wrap it with some kind of uh, tape to prevent it from drying out and to hold the bud in place. And then the next year you'll get a new tree from that single bud. That single bud will grow into a tree about six feet tall. So there's different ways to do it. You know, different nurseries do it different ways. Okay, so depending on the rootstock that's put up into a tree, can you can you gauge what's going to happen, or does the new rootstock kind of alter the the production of the tree and what it produces in fruit, or what happens? Well, usually when you look at a tree, you can as long as the roots, as long as the graft union is above ground, you can see where that graft union is. That's it, it, usually usually the the bark looks different, or sometimes it's swollen below the bark the uh, graft union. You can see where it is, but uh, they do look, yeah, the, the bark usually looks different, so it's pretty easy to tell. And we try to plant it so the graft union is above the soil, up 
three to four inches above the soil, because if it goes below the soil, then the top of the tree might root, and you lose the effect of the of the rootstock. So you don't want that. What do you mean the top of the tree will start producing roots when it shouldn't? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, they call it cyan rooting. So the golden delicious, if it's below ground, might produce roots. Then you, you lose the dwarfing effect of the rootstock. So it'll make a big tree. Oh, huh. has anyone ever tried yeah. to just do something crazy and have like five different rootstocks all grafted together to see what happens? <laughs> no, I've never heard of that. But, you know, you can put more than one variety on a tree. Stop. I've never heard of trying to put more than one variety, more than one rootstock on the bottom. But uh, well, when I was little, I know it's just probably my imagination, but I threw like ten different seeds into a hole when I was little and watered it, and I don't think it grew into one plant, but a bunch of things were kind of growing in the same space. So I don't know what it did, but it just reminds me of that. That's well, why. Just... Yeah, you you can get natural grafting sometimes when one branch, um, you know, out in the woods sometimes you see it where one branch is up against another branch, they'll grow together sometimes. And roots can, you can have root grafting in roots. Sometimes two adjacent trees can have roots that will graft together. So that can happen. Well, could you have but a I'm tree, if you, if you grafted a tree properly, could you have a tree that produces two different kinds of fruits? Yeah, you can put more than, so a lot of times what they'll do is you, you can put more than one bud on a rootstock, you know, different, a bud of more than one variety, and you can have, more than one variety on the same tree, or you can can put what you can graft one variety on, and then when a tree gets to be a year or two, you can graft different branches. It can be different varieties. My dad had a tree at home with about I think about fifteen varieties on one tree. Um, oh wow! So, so you can have uh, yeah. yeah, almost like a supermarket on one tree. That's crazy. Yeah, you could. And the the, some, the fruits some, don't they don't seem to. Are they growing independently of each other, just from the same rootstock, or um, how integrated are the fruits? Well, the fruit, I mean, each branch is going to be independent enough. I mean, they're all connected together, but, uh, you know, you can have one branch is Macintosh, another one's Red Delicious, another one's Fuji, and they're, and they're distinct varieties. So it doesn't really seem to affect the fruit itself. Um, but the leaves are going to look different. You know, the fruit's going to be different. They'll bloom at different times. Um, you know, some nurseries sell trees with more than one variety. So, uh, you, so you can sometimes buy trees that way too. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So, what, what are there? Uh, what are I don't know. What are some again mysteries of uh, of fruit production that you've worked on? In addition, anything else that was really curious to you or interesting? Well, one I spent quite a bit of time on was trying to figure out why apples drop off the tree, why why some of them do. Sometimes we had uh, some varieties, some years. Some of the fruit will fall off the tree before they're ready to pick. And I tried to figure out why that was. And I worked on it for a few years. I never did figure it out. <laughs> but uh, in the well, other What did you part, notice? Were the, were the stems shaped differently or thicker or thinner? Or was the fruits heavier? Like, what did you notice? I looked at all those things. It didn't matter. The, the only thing that seemed that I could find that was different was that some of the fruit ripened on the tree way ahead of the others. And the ones that ripened early fell off the tree early. I don't know why they're right from They tended to be in clusters. So an apple... Has anyone, um, since, since since a lot of plants have a branching structure, is there, um, is there a way to diagram a particular tree and you look at all the branches and then you can do a calculation of the nutrient flow percentages that each branch would get so you know like where to prune? Like, has anyone ever developed like pruning software 
based on, you know, get a mathematical representation of what you have? Uh, there is some printing software out there. I don't know if anybody really uses it commercially, but I've seen them. And it kind of shows how the tree is going to respond to a pruning cut. I don't know if it has anything to do with nutrient flow. I mean, I, I've never seen anybody worry about that. Um, I don't know anybody. Know why really, certain uh, fruits will, I don't know why certain fruits will ripen more. I mean, I know it's not just the structure of it, but the structure, I guess the percentage of sunlight hits it. I'm not sure what other factor it would be, but maybe you could figure it out that way. I've gone about seven or eight years, and we tested a lot of hypotheses, and we couldn't. <laughs> I mean, we looked at everything we could think of, and we never figured it out. But just, the one thing we could find is that it was in a cluster of fruit. Maybe about 5% of the clusters would have one fruit that was, was ripe and the other fruit weren't. I, and I stopped working on it at that point, so I never got it down to the point where I, I could tell which clusters might have had that problem. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I didn't get that far. Yeah. I don't know if this will be worth it, but what if you had like an apple tree and again, you characterize its branching pattern and the widths of the different branches and the sunlight exposure, you kind of mapped out the tree, but you also did testing on, let's say like in the tree, you know, what was the sugar content, the nutrient content, the size, the shape, the, and, and see if you can draw a correlation between the structure of the tree and again, the sunlight and the inputs it gets and, you know, where fruit grew, how big it was, how ripe it was, et cetera. Well, we looked at most of those things and it didn't matter. So, I don't know. I mean, we did look at most of those Stuff things. ripening too fast, I guess, falling off. But what did you notice? But what, what did you notice from, from all your analyses? Like, you couldn't find any conclusion there, but could you find any other patterns? No, that was the problem. We couldn't find any patterns. We actually went out with Sharpies and we numbered most of the fruit on the tree. So we knew where it came from. We measured the length and diameter of the stems. We measured the orientation of the fruit on the limb. We weighed every fruit. We measured the sugar in it, the amount of starch in it, counted the number of seeds. We did all that kind of stuff and we just couldn't find it. It just seemed to be random. And, we know, and I don't think it is random, but I just couldn't figure it out. But what did you notice? From collecting? That's a really cool experiment you guys did. I mean, you collected a lot of data. Did you notice anything? Was there any correlation no, no. of anything? Like, like, you know, if an apple is uh, well, two feet off the ground versus six feet off the ground, any difference? It didn't matter what side of the tree, the height of the tree, or the inside of the outside of the tree, they're all, all the same. The only thing we found is that they tended, we tended to get more of them dropping on a windy day, <laughs> which you'd expect. But that was the only thing we found. So... After, I mean, we, we did a lot of experiments, you know, probably 25 or 30 experiments, and we really did couldn't you, figure it out. Did you guys do a taste test, at least when all the work was done? Did you get to eat the apples? Or no? A taste test? Yeah, I just wonder, no, you know, like you, you measured them in the lab many ways, but did anyone just take a bite out of a bunch of them and see what's different? No, no, we, no we just measured sugar. Um, uh, no, we didn't, we didn't do a taste test, no. How about the um, the level of variation of the sugars and starches and all that? Like in a given tree, is there a tremendous variation or is it a very narrow band? No, there's some. It mostly depends on the uh, how much fruit is on the tree. If there's a lot of fruit on the tree, there's probably going to be less sugar in each individual fruit. Well, there's, there's variation between trees and there's variation within a tree. Like the, the fruit on the inside of the tree where it's shaded tends to have less sugar than the fruit on the outside of the tree where it's in the full sun. So, yeah, we, we know that much. Oh, what about fruits that are higher up? 
versus ones that are lower down? Is there any difference in them? No, it's mostly depends on how much light hits that part of the tree. That doesn't necessarily have to hit the fruit itself, but the leaves around the fruit. So if it's in the top of the tree, it's going to tend to have more sun hitting it than if it's in the lower part of the tree. So it's more how much shade there is more than exactly where the fruit's located. What about if you have a tree that, uh, you know, has, I don't know, 100 ripe fruits and like another 50 that aren't ripe yet? Um, is there an optimal time to pick them? If you pick the ripe ones, does that all of a sudden allow the tree to reallocate a lot more nutrients to the existing fruits? Yes, yeah. So you've got a couple of things going on. I mean, as the fruit ripens, you know, the sugar goes up, but it gets softer. The fruit gets softer, too. So if you if you let the fruit get a really high sugar, it may be too soft that it can't store very well. So that's why sometimes you get fruit in the, in the supermarkets that don't taste very good. It's because they're picking them a little bit early. So they store, you know, they, and, the, and a lot of apple varieties actually taste better after they've been in storage for a couple of months because while the fruit is in storage, uh, the, the sugar, the, the starch in the, in the fruit is converted to sugar, so it gets sweeter, and the acid binds. So the combination of more sugar, less acid, they tend to taste sweeter if they've been in storage for a couple of months. Some varieties, right. I think, taste good right off the tree. Like Golden Delicious, I think, is pretty good right off the tree, even Gala. But something like Granny Smith, much better coming out of storage, maybe after six or eight months. It's, okay. When a fruit is somewhat ripe versus very ripe, does it weigh more? Is there more water? Like, does the sugar weigh less than the starches as they're converted? Like, what changes about a given fruit? Well, they get, every day they're on the tree, they grow a little bit. So they are getting bigger, yeah. Mostly it's an increase in sugar, in uh, water. The sugar is probably increasing a little bit too because the uh, starch is being converted to sugar. But it's mostly water. Getting fruit a little bit bigger every day when they're on the tree, and mostly because of water. Oh, so the water comes along. I mean, do fruits, do fruits grow to a certain size and then stop and convert to all sugar, or do they keep growing forever until they fall off or, you know, rot? I, I, well, I'm not totally sure. I think they keep growing until they fall off. and uh, they'll, So they're not going to stay on real long. I mean, you know, when, I'm not trying to say this, but about the time they're really ripe, they're going to start falling off. And so, so there's a difference between maturity and ripeness. Okay, my, at least my definition, uh, most of the textbooks would say that a fruit that is mature has the ability to ripen after it's been picked. And, uh, and ripen to an acceptable eating quality. It doesn't mean it's a great eating quality, but it's acceptable. So, um, so that's how it's going to be when it's mature. It has the ability to ripen. And ripen, ripen means that it has good eating quality. And that's why, you know, tomatoes are picked green. They're mature. And then they, after they pick them, they'll turn red. So oh, but what about other fruits? That. I mean, if you if you wait long enough, then even if you pick a fruit, it'll still ripen a bit more. But if you go too early, it won't. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least it won't ripen properly. Yeah, if you pick a, an apple too early, it, it really won't ripen. It'll, it'll just, it, it'll get a little softer, but it'll never taste good. So it has to reach a certain level of maturity before it really has the ability to ripen so that it, it has acceptable eating quality. Well, I would think the, uh, the, the connection of the stem would, would change and, you know, the nature of it would degrade maybe as the fruit ripens to prepare it to fall off the tree. Did you look at like a cross section of the stem 
to see if the structure had changed or if, uh, you know, parts of it were weakening? Yeah, we, we identified the enzyme involved. Yeah, there was, a, um, there was an enzyme that actually broke down the cell walls so that uh, cells tore apart, and, and that's when they fell. So we were able to, so that's one thing we did. So, uh, okay, yeah, very, very yeah. cool. No, it's really interesting. As I, as I think through it, there's, there's so many things to look at. It's really, really cool. But um, Okay. Well, well, Rich, yeah. I, I know you just retired, but where can people find out more about the work that you've done? Where can they go? Most of it's in referee journals, but uh, it's not, it's, we do put out a newsletter at Penn State University called Street Times, and some of it's in there, but most of it's in referee journals. So they have to, some of them now are open source, so like the Court Science, the journal published by the American Society for Horticultural Science. The other one is the Journal of the American Pomological Society. So those are the two journals that I've published most most of my work. And I, and I have some extension bulletins on the web uh, from when I was at Virginia Tech. If you want to know general general how to grow fruit, you know, like like there's there are, there's still extension bulletins on the web called something like. Growing apples in Virginia, growing peaches in Virginia, pruning—they're all free on the Virginia Tech website. So those, so those are available. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Rich, thank you for coming on the sure. podcast. I appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. Have a good day. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.